verse 33. Over the last few weeks, we have seen Jesus go through this mock trial and his own people handed him over for crucifixion. One of his own disciples betrayed him and Jesus has been hanging on the cross. We've been talking about that experience. We talked about the criminals he was crucified with and here today we are drawing near to the end of Jesus' time on the cross. I will repeat this once again. I, I, I've said it every week or every other week, but I will still encourage you to read the various gospel accounts of this, of this story because there are lots of details that we see in some of the other gospel accounts that we do not see in Mark's account. And we've kind of hit some of those briefly as we've gone through and, and tried to bring some of those things out. But you'll get a much, much better picture and understanding of, of what went on uh, when you read all of the gospel accounts because some cover uh, different parts of, of the event that others did not cover. Uh, but we will begin this morning in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, and we will read through verse 41. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine fixed it on a reed, offered him a drink, and he said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they would follow him and help him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you today and we thank you that we can come into your house. And I pray, God, that you would be glorified in this place. God, I pray that as we focus on Jesus, that you would help us to see who he is. God, that each one in this room would see that he is your son, that we would see the pain and the suffering that he went through for us, dear Lord. God, I pray that you let your word speak to us, that you let your Holy Spirit speak to us today. I pray that you hide me behind the cross as I preach and teach. Take away my nerves and take away my pride, God, that everything today would be for you and that you would do a work in this place. God, I pray that you free us from distractions and worries of this world. We come in here, stuff, God, we got stuff on our mind, but I pray that you bind the enemy. He'll try to get us off track today. He does not want your word to, to penetrate, but God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would let this word just cut to the, to the core of us, dear Lord, like a two-edged sword, to cut into the bone and the marrow, God, and your word will do just that. So I pray that we would listen. I pray that you would let these be good words for us today. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus had been on the cross 
for some time, and we see in verse 33 that when it was noon, darkness came on the whole land until three in the afternoon. And so here we cover a, a three-hour span of time. And after Jesus had been suffering for hours on the cross, Mark records these words in verse 34, and at three Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. Now, there are a few occasions that we see in Scripture the transliteration of the original language. Now, this could have been Hebrew or Aramaic. Even the scholars kind of disagree because the, the terms in both Hebrew and Aramaic are very similar. Uh, but many believe that Jesus would have spoken primarily Aramaic during his ministry, although he probably knew other languages. And he, and he said this phrase, and Mark records this, and other Gospels do too, Eli, Eli, limits the bachthani. And, and the reason why that we see the uh, Aramaic or Hebrew phrase and then the translation of that may, may be explanatory in the verses to come. We see the phrase, Eli, Eli, limits the bachthani, and we see the meaning. Now, usually we don't have the Aramaic or the Hebrew or the Greek or whatever it would be. We just simply have the translation. And Mark gives us that translation. And the translation is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we have talked about this in the last few weeks. When we talk about the death, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, and, and in the last few Wednesday nights as we've been talking about the birth of Jesus, we have talked about the significance that prophecy is being fulfilled. We see lots of prophecy fulfilled here at the end of Jesus' life, and it's alluded to by Jesus. And, and Jesus says things, I believe, because he wants to get the people's attention so that they will realize hey, you guys have been reading for years about this Messiah who was to come. And Jesus was trying to point his people back to the passages of the Old Testament, the prophetic passages that we see in the Old Testament. And there are many. And Psalm 22 is a significant chapter when we look at things that were prophesied that were pointing us forward to Jesus. And if you want to turn there, you can in Psalm 22. And when Jesus uh, says this here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting a scripture. Jesus is quoting the words of Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. And I don't believe that that was simply a coincidence. Now, no doubt Jesus knew the scripture. He, he knew it well, and he probably spoke scriptures often. But I don't think that it was just a coincidence that Jesus spoke this passage at this point in time. I believe that he wanted his hearers to hear what he said and be reminded of Psalm 22. Why? Because it was pointing to him. He wanted people to know that he had come, that he was the suffering servant that we see in the Old Testament, that he was the Messiah. And so I think Jesus spoke these words to get the crowd's attention. Now, this may not have been as familiar to us. Now, some of you may have heard this and said, oh, yeah, that's, that's Psalm 22.1. But, but most of us may not have recognized that. But for the people of Jesus' day, many of them probably knew the Scriptures a little better than we do. 
They, they would have had to memorize them a little more. They wouldn't have had a Bible on their tablet and a Bible in their, in their car and a Bible in their, in their office at church and a Bible on their pew and a Bible here and there. We got Bibles everywhere. We got smartphones. We got no shortage of God's Word. But in those days, they did not have as easy access to God's Word, and they probably, uh, many people would have memorized and been maybe more aware of what God's Word says than perhaps sometimes you and I are. And so some that day probably didn't catch what Jesus was saying, but we have to assume that perhaps some did. Perhaps some did make that connection when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had God really forsaken Jesus on the cross? Well, that's a good question. Some would say that God did absolutely forsake Jesus, because he could not look on sin. Others would say that it's simply uh, describing how Jesus felt in the moment, as, as we see in the psalm, the, des- the description of the, of the psalmist, of how the psalmist felt, and perhaps even sometimes how you and I feel. We may not say those exact words, but we may feel as though at times God has forsaken us. God, do you hear my prayers? God, are you with me? God, I've been asking for this thing, and I'm suffering in this way, and you're not making it better. God, are you there? And we may question, and we may wonder, is God with us? We may have the same mindset here of of what we see in Psalm 22 and what we see of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see that very thing in Psalm 22, verse 1. But we also see some other things here in Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, verse 8, we see this mentioned of this suffering servant of the Lord. It says, He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. Now here we see the very same, same thing that we see mentioned in Psalm 22 that David speaks of. We see also mentioned of Jesus. These are words that applied to David in Psalm 22, but but what about in Jesus' day? Well, we don't see it in Mark, but in Matthew chapter 27, verse 43, the people at the cross that day says, says this of Jesus. He has put his trust in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am God's son. Very similar to what we see in Psalm 22, is it not? And so the very things that the crowd that day that hated Jesus were saying were the things that we see prophesied in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is the people who were there that day who are saying and doing some of the other things we see in Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18, it says, For dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers have closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Now, if I didn't tell you that was Psalm 22, if I just read that to you, you would think that I was reading from a gospel account, probably. Because that's exactly what this group did to Jesus. They pierced his hands and they pierced his feet and they cast lots for his clothes. But yet that passage comes from Psalm 22, hundreds of years before Jesus. So when Jesus says these words, 
He may very well have felt what he said. He may have felt forsaken by God, and perhaps he really was forsaken by God. If that view that God could not look on sin, perhaps that is true. But at the very least, even if that's not true in a, in a literal sense, he felt that way. He felt forsaken. His friends had already abandoned him. He had nobody else, and here he was on the cross, and who else did he have but God the Father? And he cries out in his pain and in his agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I wonder how many in the crowd that day picked up on what he said. I wonder if maybe in the days and the weeks that followed, the events of that day began to replay in their mind. And as they begin to read the scripture, or perhaps the next time they saw the words of Psalm 22, perhaps some of them, the light bulb went off and they said, wait a minute, this is the Messiah. Wait a minute, everything has happened as it was. The man on the cross that day was the Son of God. And I believe that's why Jesus chose those very specific words. But what about the, what about the Aramaic or Hebrew that we see there? Why, why do we see some of these phrases recorded in Aramaic and Hebrew? Well, I don't know why we see some of the other ones mentioned that we've seen. In particular, we saw one in, in, in Mark earlier, uh, several months ago. But we do. I'll give you a, a suggestion as to why this may be here. Because... The verses that follow begin to speak of Elijah. In verse 35, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. So when they heard Jesus say, Eli, Eli, limis the bachthani, they said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Now, it's possible because those first two words, Eli, perhaps if Jesus was too weak to speak loudly or perhaps the people were at a distance, they may have thought Jesus was calling for Elijah, which may be why Mark and some of the other gospel accounts give us the phrase to show why the people mentioned Elijah here. Why else would they mention Elijah here? Perhaps they thought that Jesus were calling out for Elijah. Now, there's, there's, some, there's some reason as to why they may have thought this, and, and we see this in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This, this may explain why they even mentioned Elijah or thought Elijah would come. Because we see this prophecy in Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And it says this. The Lord says, Look, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so here we see this prophecy of Elijah that would come before the great day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, Elijah is taken up. He didn't die. He's taken up by the Lord. And in Malachi, we see this reference that Elijah was going to come that Elijah was going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So some of God's people, it would appear, based on their response to Jesus here, is that they were looking for Elijah. And they said, hey, let's see if Elijah comes to, comes to save him. And perhaps they misunderstood what Jesus said because the start of what Jesus was saying sounds somewhat like Elijah, especially if Jesus is weak and, and the people are at a distance and can't hear. But... 
if the people had listened to Jesus throughout his ministry, they would know that this was not the case. Now, we see this passage in Revelation that speaks of these two witnesses. In Revelation 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 3, that says, I will empower my two witnesses. Now, we will not dissect that today. There is much to discuss when it comes to that. But throughout the years, I hear many folks say, who are these two witnesses? Oh, I think they're Elijah. I think they're Moses. I think they're this person or that person. I think they're Enoch and who they're going to be. And people try to decide who these two witnesses are. And I was just getting a haircut the other day, and somebody was in the barbershop talking about this very passage, about these two witnesses. Uh, but we don't want to make the same mistake that the people of Jesus' day made. Because Jesus tells us plainly and clearly who Elijah is. And we see that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. It says this, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Who does Jesus tell us Elijah is? If you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist was Elijah who was to come. And in many ways, even in a physical sense, John the Baptist was like the prophet Elijah. And Jesus says here pretty clearly in Matthew chapter 11 that John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. Do we need further proof? Well, Jesus gives it to us in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. So his disciples questioned him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has, come, has already come, and they don't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. Elijah was the John the Baptist, or excuse me, John the Baptist was the Elijah that was spoken of in Malachi. And when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Eli, Eli, they thought he was calling for Elijah. But it doesn't appear at all that Jesus was calling for Elijah. Jesus knew and had told his disciples on two occasions that John the Baptist was Elijah. In verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And so the people of Jesus' day had missed what Jesus had been saying throughout his whole ministry. They had not paid attention to Jesus. They had obviously missed what he said about Elijah. Uh, they had obviously missed some of the things that he said about the, being the fulfillment of the Scripture. That, and, and, and here on the cross, they are still mocking Jesus, saying, look, let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down. He says he's the Son of God. Let's see if he will be rescued from what he is going through. Now, we see one other interesting thing at the end of the passage that we read here, and that was the mention of the women who were at the cross. And we see different, different gospel accounts point out these women that were at the cross. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was in that crowd as well. And, and we don't have much, much information here in Mark uh, other than that these women were there. 
But we do have a beautiful story that tells us something about those women. There's some significance, perhaps, to the gospel accounts uh, listing those women as being there. And one of the most significant things, if not the most significant uh, thing that comes from the listing that the women were there, Jesus' mother including, is something that occurs while Jesus is on the cross. Now, Mark does not record this here before Jesus died. He mentions that there are women there, but Mark does not re record this, 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 this command that Jesus gives as he speaks to his mother right before he gives his life. And we can find that story covered in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, we see a beautiful story of something that occurred between Jesus and his mother before he breathed his last breath. And in John chapter 19, verse 25, it says, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, uh, more likely that is John that's being spoken of, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to his disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So here is Jesus is in the midst of his suffering and he sees his mother there and, and no doubt can see the agony that his mother must have been going through and, and the disciple he loved, most likely John standing there. And Jesus says, look, Mary, this is your son. He says, look, John, this is your mother. That is, you take care of her. John, I'm leaving her in your control. I'm leaving her in your care. What a beautiful, what a beautiful little couple of verses we see there from the book of John. And so when we read these, these, these verses in Mark about the women being there, even though Mark doesn't cover this story, there is some significance to these women there and some significance to the fact that Jesus' mother's there. And women play an important part of, of Jesus and his ministry and in the kingdom of God. It's, after all, it's going to be women who are going to discover the empty tomb here as we get to that in the next few weeks. And in verse 37, it says, But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. Jesus has been suffering for a long time, and finally he breathed his last breath. And when Jesus breathed his last breath, the curtain of the sanctuary was ripped. Now this is very significant. Before Jesus came, the high priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies and have to go behind the veil and have to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, the sacrifices of goats and bulls and all these other animals that we see described for us. But when Jesus came onto the scene and when Jesus' blood was shed on the cross and when Jesus breathed his last breath and his life was given for us, at that very moment, that veil was torn from top to bottom. Why was that? What's the significance? Well, there is great significance in that there is no other sacrifice to be offered. We are not going to start sacrificing goats and bulls and all of these things because Jesus is our sacrifice. It was not just a coincidence that the veil happened to tear at that time. The Lord tore the veil. Sometimes maybe we want to sew the veil back up. We want to try to earn God's favor by what we can do. 
That's what we do, and we sow in the veil back up. Okay, God, let me offer you something that I can do to earn your love and forgiveness. No, there's nothing we can do. The veil has been torn. There's nothing that we can do on our behalf other than follow Jesus because he is the sacrifice for us. He has shed his blood so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. And it was God who tore the veil that day. And woe unto us if we try to sew it back up. We don't go through the veil. We go through Jesus Christ. He is the veil. It is through him that we are forgiven. Hebrews says if the, if the blood of goats and bulls would have been sufficient, uh, then, then, then we would have not needed another sacrifice. But they were insufficient. They were not enough. But Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is perfectly sufficient. And the blood of Jesus Christ is pure. And it will wash you as white as snow. And when Jesus breathed his last breath, there was a new covenant. There was a new covenant that was established by the blood of Jesus and by the flesh of Jesus. And that is the covenant by which we live by. That is what we live by is Jesus Christ and Christ's commands. Verse 39. When the centurion who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last. And this, he said, this man really was the Son of God. Isn't that something right there? Can you imagine what that, what that must have been like that day as the darkness come over the land? Can you imagine? You can't imagine. It's, it's, it's difficult but, but there was something there, even in the midst of Jesus' suffering, there was something there that people noticed, that people realized who Jesus was. Remember the two criminals we talked about? We, said, we see early on in the account that it says that they both mocked him. But something changed somewhere along the way. And by the end of it, one of those criminals was saying, Jesus, let me come into your kingdom. I want to be in your kingdom with you. And the centurion saw something. One of the soldiers that was there that day, when Jesus breathed his last breath, the centurion who was there and saw him said, this man really was the Son of God. Matthew 27, verse 51 says, Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. And so even if you weren't there to see the veil being torn, if you were in the area that day, you would have felt the earthquake. Perhaps that's what the centurion felt that day. As the earth began to quake, the sky had darkened and the earth quaked. And you can imagine the fear that may have been on some of the folks that day. And perhaps there were others other than that centurion who said, Oh my, oh my, what have I done? What have we done? And the centurion Realized that day who Jesus was. In verse in Luke chapter 23, verse 48, it says this of the crowds as well, all the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. Striking their chests. That's a that's a something that we see in scripture that people do when they are mourning. That's something that we see people do when, when they are in a time of repentance. Perhaps there were many that day, standing there that day, that just a few hours before had been yelling, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And perhaps in the humility of Jesus' suffering, perhaps in the events that took place that day, 
Perhaps there were some in the crowd along with that centurion saying, wait a minute, this man really was the son of God. But praise the Lord, Jesus died for those very people. Jesus died for those very people who were yelling for him to be crucified. So if the moment in their life came that they recognized that he was the Savior, that they would repent, that they would strike their chest and say, Woe unto me, God, I cannot even bear to look my eyes to you for what I have done. I am a wretched sinner. God, please have mercy on my soul. And that is the place that you and I must all be. That is the place in which you and I may all get to. As long as we are thinking that we have it figured out, as long as we are thinking we don't need Jesus, as long as we are thinking Jesus is not the Savior of the world, we are the crowd that day who stood there and mocked Jesus and beat Jesus and laughed at Jesus and, and, and were amazed and glad at what was taking place. We are the crowd. We are the crowds. We are sinners. And Jesus took it. He took it knowing your sin because he knew if he didn't take it that there would be no forgiveness of that sin. And so maybe today you are one of those. And maybe you know a lot about Jesus. I suspect many of the people in the crowd that day had probably heard Jesus at some point in time. He covered a lot of ground. He preached to a lot of people. Many in that crowd had probably heard Jesus preaching before and teaching. Some of them probably saw him do some miracles. Many of them probably knew the Scripture of God, what we call the Old Testament. They would have known about the prophecies, but, but somehow they missed him. Somehow they missed Jesus. And maybe some in this room have done the same thing. Maybe you've heard of Jesus. Maybe Jesus has been close to you before. Maybe you've, maybe you've been really close to the kingdom of God. After all, at the beginning of Mark, when Jesus came onto the scene, he says, look, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. But not everybody entered the kingdom of God. Everybody that Jesus preached to and everybody that he, that he taught and every miracle that he done showed them and they knew they could see and they could hear that the kingdom of God had come near. But they had to enter into the kingdom. Through Jesus, they had to say, okay, I believe you are who you say you are. I want to be in your kingdom. That criminal got it. That's what he said. He said, I want to be in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, hanging from a cross. He repented and said, I, I, I believe you are who you say you are. I want to be in your kingdom because his heart changed. He didn't have time to do a good work. He didn't have time to be baptized. He didn't have time to go to church. He didn't have time to put money in the offering plate. He didn't have time to lead somebody else to Christ. He didn't do any of those things. But yet today, Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because his heart was changed. Because the kingdom of God had come near him. And of all places, as he's hanging there, nailed to a tree, right beside him is the Savior of God. The kingdom of God came near the criminal that day. And he said, I want to be in the kingdom. But what about you and I? When you read God's word, the kingdom of God comes near. When you come to church, the kingdom of God comes near. 
question you must answer is, have you entered the kingdom of God? Maybe the Holy Spirit's been working on you. Maybe these words that we read today in Scripture have gotten a hold of you in some way. Maybe today you realize that, that you've been living like those in the crowd. But maybe today you've had a centurion experience. Maybe today for the first time you say to yourself, Jesus really was the Son of God. Jesus really was the Son of God. Now praise the Lord. If the Holy Spirit has put that on your heart today, then enter into the kingdom. If you realize that Jesus is the king and the king has come near and Jesus died that day so you could be forgiven, then enter into the kingdom of God today because you may not have a tomorrow. You enter into the kingdom of God when it has come near. And if it has come near to your heart today, then I encourage you, I beg you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning. We thank you for these good words. And God, I pray that as we, as we think about these things, that if there is one in this room that has not ever put their faith in Jesus, that today they would do so. God, maybe they have been so close to your kingdom. Maybe they've been right on the edge of it. God, maybe they've been trying to get in by other means. Maybe they've been trying to live better to get in or put a little more money in the plate to get in or say a little bit of longer prayer to get in. Come to church a little more to get in. God, whatever it may be. Maybe, maybe there are some in this room and they're, they're so close to the kingdom and they're, they're trying to get in every way but the way that'll work. We only enter into your kingdom through Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that if there is one in this room today that is near the kingdom, that they'd come on in. That they'd go to Jesus right now in their heart. And that they would just admit, acknowledge that he is your son, and to say that he's the savior of the world, and that they'd put their faith in him. God, that they would say they're not going to follow anybody else, anything else. That they know that there is hope in no other. God, that they would confess their sins to you. Because, God, you are faithful to forgive us. And you can do that because Jesus hung on the cross that day. He finished his mission to the last breath, dear Lord. And because he did that, God, we can be forgiven. Because he shed his blood. Because he offered his flesh, God, we can be forgiven. And if there's one this morning that's not yours, I pray that they come to you today. God, I pray that if there are some in here that are yours, maybe there are some things that we're going through, some things in our heart, I pray that you just help us to seek you. Maybe there's some repentance that needs to take place, God. I pray that if that's the case, that we'd do it. God, I pray that we'd strive to live for you, that we would strive to expand your kingdom, that God, when people see the love and the way that we live, that they would see your kingdom, dear Lord. That we could take your word into their life. That we can bring your love into their life, dear Lord. So that through the Holy Spirit that sent us, God, that the kingdom could come near to them so that they may enter the kingdom. God, I thank you for these good words. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would use them to bless us, not just today, but in the days and weeks and months and years to come. Recall these words to our mind. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.